Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by Farm Credit of Northwest Florida. Farm Credit of Northwest Florida has over a century of experience providing financing for people who live, work, or play in the country. Farm Credit is here to help you make your dream of country living a reality. Their unique cooperative structure allows them to return some of their profits back to their borrowers. This patronage distribution effectively lowers a borrower's rate. To get started with your first or next land purchase, give them a call at 855-GO-RURAL or visit them at www.gorural.net. And also brought to you by the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a trail cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only. Fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. I'm your host, Joe Baye, here today with my co-host, Nick Williams. Nick, today we are going to be talking to Michael Perry. Michael's the current Alabama whitetail state record holder uh, with a muzzle loader. And while that is a truly impressive deer... Michael, his wife, Kathy, and his inner circle, that, that's not the only big deer they've killed. They are consistently killing big, mature whitetails in the deep south using bows, muzzle loaders, rifles. I mean, they're consistent. I'm really looking forward to talking to him today and learning some secrets, some tips, some techniques, and, and really kind of adding it all up to figure out how are they having this success. Have you been following yeah. along with, with Michael? I know he's, he's killed some big deer and, and been, you know, gained some notoriety for that. You've been following along with him. I'm, I'm excited to, to hear from him because yeah, I've been keeping up with him for years. It's, it's truly impressive to me. Anybody can kill a big deer. You can be in the right place at the, at the right time. But, but Michael and, and some of his friends and family, if, if you keep up with them year after year, they have been shooting uh, unusually large deer on public land property so there's obviously there is something that they know that the vast majority of hunters don't so i'm excited to hear from them michael perry is the author of deer hunting secrets to taking mature bucks on public land and his wife kathy michael kathy welcome to hunting land i'm really excited about today's show because we're going to focus in on muzzleloader hunting which in the grand scheme of things is is fairly new to a lot of people it's been around obviously longer than any kind of uh, firearm hunting but you know it, it there's really some unique benefits that it offers but it doesn't come without its own set of considerations and and gear and really an understanding of the platform uh but before we get into gear recommendations and things like that i want to know like what got you into this uh why did you start muzzleloader hunting well really uh yeah good morning y'all i'm glad appreciate y'all having us on uh Years ago, when I first started hunting, or when I was first introduced to deer hunting, my dad and them, their group, you know, the only way you could actually kill a deer, like either sex, was with a muzzleloader. So they were real, they believed in that, and they chased them uh, either sex hunts, either sex muzzleloader hunts throughout the state on, you know, various pieces of public land. So once I got old enough to tote one of them, that's what I had. So we've done that a bunch, you know, four or five times a season because you can shoot a doe and all your rifle hunts, you can only shoot bucks most of the time. So we got introduced to that. And, and back then, you couldn't have a scope. You had, it was all just fixed sights. And the newer inlines were starting to come in, but it was, it was still a work in progress. So a lot of us still had the old Thompson Center Cherokees, and uh, I can't even think of the original one, but they were, they were smooth bore basically and just long option barrels. You know, and it just wasn't as accurate as what you got nowadays. But, it was fun and it just give you a lot more opportunity. Yeah. The opportunity is definitely the, the attractive side of really all the, uh, alternative weapons. I would call it. It's how I got into bow hunting. It's how I got into muzzleloader hunting. And, you know, you guys hunt prim primarily in, in Alabama, but if you go out West, your seasons open up even more. Most places have either some type of a primitive weapon season or, or a muzzleloader season that really opens up your opportunities. 
Miss Kathy, I got to ask you, you know, my wife also likes to hunt and I'm always very careful, uh, with, with her and also with, I've got two young boys. Uh, I'm careful with them about recoil and because I don't want them to have a bad experience. My muzzle loader, I would say it's, uh, it, it, the recoil is pretty heavy. You know, it is a, um, it's a light gun. It's not awful. It's more like a shotgun recoil than a, than a rifle recoil, but have you, how have you enjoyed, uh, muzzleloader hunting? Is it something that you've had to kind of get used to, or have you been doing it a long time as well? I started a couple of years ago. We were out at Bankhead and, uh, it was a muzzleloader hunt and, uh, I took a crossbow and Michael took his muzzleloader and I seen a nice 10 point and I couldn't, he was too far. I couldn't shoot him. And so when he come and got me, I told him, I said, we're going to Cabela's. <laughs> he said, why? I said, we're going to get him a smoke. <laughs> we're not going to let <laughs> that so happen again. Yeah, that ain't happening. And so we went and got me a muzzleloader, and then uh, I ended up taking a nice eight point. So you've been able to to get used to it and 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 handle it just fine. Oh yeah, I love that little gun. And then I end up shooting an AON and one gun, and All I right. like it better than one a hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she she actually killed the biggest buck scored in Alabama Outdoor News magazine with a muzzleloader that year. And one, uh, she, I bought her a CVA Wolf, or like a smaller one that what, you know, was easier for her to handle. Then she ended up winning an Acura, CVA Acura, you know, on a real nice one. So, but she killed a nice eight point that first season. So, first one, too. First one ever with muzzleloader. So, I was tickled to ask. <laughs> very cool. That's very cool that y'all get to hunt together. I know I enjoy having my spouse with me. And it's just, I'm, I'm more tickled when I see somebody else in, in my inner group get a deer or a turkey or whatever it may be, uh, than I am. So that's really cool. Y'all get to do that together. Well, let's talk about muzzleloader seasons a little bit. You guys primarily hunt public land. And when you are hunting these special muzzleloader seasons, what phase of the season are you in? So what I mean by that is, you know, typically in Alabama, you've obviously got a lot of different rut zones, but typically when a bow season opens up, you're in really a, a just a typical almost summer pattern those deer are moving from food sources to bedding areas and you're hunting either the destination or the transition area when you guys are hunting with muzzle loaders are y'all in a, a phase of the rut what is it like here on our public land there's plays up after bow season if they are early part of november they'll have a special muzzleloader hunt so like november 1st to the 5th you know generally something like that but uh, two different management areas will have that, and one of them will be like, won't even be close to rut, but the main area that we focus on early season, it'll be pre-rut, so you're getting a little bit more, getting a little bit more buck cruising, and you know, those are getting ready to come in heat around the 12th, 13th of November, so so we're kind of pre-rut, but we, you know, you can go, you know, different places and just basically deer hunt, but we're kind of cutting on bucks already by then, so. Right. Well, I, I got to ask you this, when, you, when you're dealing with that pre-rut, First thing I want you to do is define what that means to you, because I see rut, pre-rut, post-rut, uh, getting thrown around a lot. And a lot of times people mean different things, uh, than other people mean, even if they're saying the same word. So for me, when I think of pre-rut, like you mentioned, I think of a bucks are cruising, they're looking, they're trying to find receptive does. Uh, they're also just kind of getting the lay of the land and understanding where those doe groups are. They're not quite really locked on to one yet. It could happen, but they're not locked on to those does full on breeding yet. Is that what you mean when you say pre-rut? Now, pre-rut, basically, let's say out Halloween or in that area, like a light switch flips and bucks start cruising more, you know, they'll start laying down more scrapes and more rubbing activity and basically just cruising around, setting their dominance up and then looking for doe, checking doe groups out, trying to find the early doe. So when you see those indicators... And you know, all right, either by the calendar or the, the sign that you're seeing in the woods that it's pre-rut. How does your scouting change? Uh, what are you looking for as an area that you want to set up a stand? Well, that by by then, so we're already bow hunting some, so we're keeping up with the doe group, seeing what mass crops you've had and where the does are kind of concentrating. So we're then we're changing, basically getting ready for hunting pinch points, funnel areas where bucks will be cruising, you know, creek crossings. Any kind of edge that where that's got some kind of transition, maybe an upper elevation transition, it just depends on that part of that depends on what kind of summer you have. If you didn't have a drought, then they would still be, I mean, the bucks would tend to use the upper elevation more 
during that time frame for us. And then if there'd been a drought, they might drop down some. But you got to kind of keep up with the food source and then keep up with the does. And then you'll see a little bit of sign, you know, rubs, fresh droppings, and, and pay attention to that and then make little moves. When you're finding these pinch points, these funnels, like you said, these areas that are going to concentrate movement, mm-hmm. what is your, when, when you take a stand there, are you trying to spend pretty much as much time as possible in those areas as, as you can at that time? Is it, is it more about how much time you put in or are you looking for certain factors, be it weather or something else? to say, all right, today's the day I'm going in there? Most of the time, it's not really weather. It's, it's kind of more date-specific. You know, of course, a cold front or storm front or something like that will help, you know, kind of trigger things a little bit better at times. But most of the time, I'm more date-specific, and it's kind of a historical information that I have using trail cameras. What You know, kind of, if I move trail cameras around, like me and Kathy will go, say, in post-season or after-season, February and March, we'll do a bunch of scouting. We'll put cameras out in different, what looks like funnel areas, and then kind of see what happens during that season. Then we'll use that information for the next season and might have to go into a spot check and see if there's some tracks, fresh tracks, and if it still looks like it's going to be that way, then we'll spend as much time as we can in a tree. But generally, she can only hunt half a day, so I'm going to move her out in the morning. Preferably, we we'll won't hunt mornings then, unless, unless there's some kind of funky front, then we might hunt a midday hunt, break it up a little bit. Generally, she's not going to hunt evenings during that time frame, but I'll go back to a different place and hunt evenings after I get her food. I'm glad you brought that up. My wife is a, uh, she loves to hunt in the mornings. That's her favorite thing. Most people you meet, especially in the deep South, really love hunting in the evenings, but she's, she just prefers to hunt in the mornings. Miss Kathy, do you have a preference? Both days and I hunt in the afternoon. Morning times is done. Gotcha. A lot of that is because of the 90, I'm going to say 90 to 95% of the bucks that we have killed or I've killed, especially me, I'm going to kill more than her, but it's been in the morning. So we just kind of use that as well. That's where our, our best chances are, whether it's due to the style we hunt in our, in our area and we're hunting, we just have more luck in the morning. You know, archery season, pretty early season, when you you tend to have more luck for us in the in the, in the evening because it's hard to get on the big bucks early in the morning because generally they're back to bed in a high pressure public land. I want to go back to what you were saying about trail cameras. What I heard you say is that you spend a lot of time in February and March postseason getting a pattern on mature bucks that have made it, right? I mean, is that is is that the goal there in February and March is just to get an understanding of who's still around? That's kind of, but mainly say we're having more luck in all the years. I'm 58 years old now, and then most of my luck is, is, has come during the rut. You know, the, the monster one that I killed a couple of years ago was, was pre-rut, but so early season, I've not had that much luck killing a monster one. It's, it's just, just hasn't really happened. So the way I put them cameras out in February, we'll find, you know, historical rub line sign or, or transitional sign rubs going both ways and like close to a pinch. And then I'll put cameras out from February and then August, I'll go back and make sure that the batteries are good and put the change of card out. Then I won't go back again until after season and kind of see what's happened during the whole season and kind of use that timeline to figure out times that we want to hunt or try to set up in these places because i won't put a trail camera out somewhere unless it's somewhere i can hunt most of the time if i'm hunting i could see a camera that's pretty close i could shoot shoot the camera it's just i want camera information to tell me somewhere where we could actually hunt so we use that information for the next season by keeping you know we're looking for new ground every year and and keeping our areas that we're kind of confident in keep a survey on them if anything's changed like beetle kill or if they've done any kind of cutting or you know, anything that kind of that could affect their pattern or they just might have made just a slight change because they they feel like they're getting pressured. So we kind of keep everything as much prize of how everything's going on from year to year, you know, without just going in blind. Basically, we just got to learn our areas as much as we can, their main areas, you know, every year just go over it. You know, she'll go with me scouting. We do like she's hunting. she'll be scouting a different level and I'll be scouting a different level and then we'll move up and if we find sign, we'll concentrate on the sign and try to figure out why then actually just circle it and try to figure out exactly where the deer is going why they're there why they're low or why they're high or why they're in an edge of the pines or, or why they're crossing that creek there you know why, why that track pointed that way and where they're coming from we just we try to be as strategic about it as we can and we'll kind of make a plan before season and kind of go there and then that's where we start out you know going to places that we feel comfortable with by the cameras and morning generally 
generally won't even look at it until we go to hunt. That's interesting to hear you say that really you're setting up your hunts year round. And I enjoy, I do something similar with cameras and in that I keep them out year round, but I honestly am just kind of looking at pictures, uh, this time of year, like I, especially here we are in August recording this. And I mean, I enjoy seeing the velvet photos and all that, but I'm not, I don't really feel like I'm learning anything that's going to help me later into the season when I can actually hunt. So what are you paying attention to on your trail cameras right now in the summertime when these deer are putting on, putting on their antlers and still grouped up? What are you, what is that teaching you about, uh, how you can then hunt them come deer season? That, that, like I say, we only check them cameras twice a year, February and August. So mm-hmm. whatever goes on in the summer, I'm not, that's just like, you know, just inventory data, basically. And if it's in velvet, the chance of him being exactly there. Most of the time, a velvet bug, unless he's a real old one, he's going to make a slight move because they're in bachelor groups and they're going to spread out whenever as soon as their antlers go, go hard, they'll move to different, you know, different areas, set up their own little, you know, areas. So, but a marks one, the, a couple of marks ones over the last few years, I've noticed that in velvet and hardhorn, they stay in the same area. They just kind of let the other bucks be in their group until they shed and they make them leave so that we kind of pay attention to that but all the summertime stuff is just got basically inventory like I say we, well, I don't have any cell cams that actually pick up you know, I've got one out right now and and it's just so hard to get signal for a cell cam so we're not only camera information we're using is I pay attention to the daylight pictures and the dates and that kind of correlates that of when they're actually you know cruising for does or actually chasing does just just kind of correlate that where when I would want to be there in that stand with the with the most action, I'm actually looking for a, a pinch point that'll show four or five bucks coming through that area than the rut time frame or the pre rut that's actually cruising, looking to give you better, give us a better chance of seeing a good buck shoot versus a, a individual buck because it's, it's hard to flop down on an individual buck unless you can do it early season because during a rut you don't know where they might go. That makes a lot of sense. So when you pull that card in February, that's that's basically your your intel for the whole season previous season and that's going to dictate a lot of what you try to do next season i love that that you really look at the daytime photos and and focus in on those uh uh, i have done that with some success uh in my scouting basically kind of reverse engineering what i'm seeing you know if i see this particular buck or i see a, a group of bucks and they use an area one time every seven days but i'm getting them consistently say once a week a lot of times i'll go back and analyze well what were the what were the weather conditions the on the days that they liked being in this spot and that's helped me to kind of figure out what winds they were comfortable with and where I felt like I could you know get in and get out without being detected and and I've had some success doing that in your experience does the ingress and egress does how you enter and how you exit play a, a big part in your success and and second to that like is part of the reason why you're checking these cameras maybe just twice a year because you're really wanting to stay out of that area unless you're hunting. Well, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to check them twice a year because I don't, I don't want a deer patterning me at all if I can help it. I don't want to even know I'm hunting them. And uh, before I put that camera out to this place, I will not put a camera out unless I know I can get in there without crossing any trails and, you know, the very least intrusion. So that's, that's part of the way my strategy is, is least intrusion. You know, I'm only going to hunt places I can get in when I feel like I'm not bothering them. So that's that's one of the parts that's hard about early season is, is trying to get in without messing with them because if you got to set up pretty tight to where they're at so they're not really moving a whole bunch of big bucks or not on public land, but, you know, because they already feel like they've been pressured like some squirrel hunter and stuff like that, so they stay tight. So, you know, the rut and free rut, you can, uh, you know, you can get a little bit farther away from the bedding area and then hunt them junctions and pinch points. Just concentrate on that, really. Michael, Kathy, before we move on, I, I do have a couple quick questions for you. You mentioned earlier, Michael, that y'all were shooting most of y'all's deer early in the morning. You killed most of your big bucks early in the morning. Do you have any theories as as to why that's the case? Because I've noticed that as well. I shoot most of my deer either early morning or kind of early afternoon, like in the you know ten to eleven o'clock range. I think with you know, I'm not 100 percent sure, but I just kind of way it plays out. We might hunt a little bit more in the mornings, but generally I hunt both of them. But a lot of it, I think, being a high-pressured area, once the deer are moving around, say the second, they'll move around more around 9 o'clock because they're making some kind of move because the thermals are switched. But then some of it's right at daylight. But by the time they 
you've had a lot of you've had a lot of people action on these public lands. So if they get pushed around a little bit, whenever they get somewhere safe, then you don't see hardly any movement after that until late in the evening, right before right before dark. So you have, you have to be set up close. I just think they just they've already smelt enough in the morning that it's harder to do it in the evening on on, a, on them kind of hunts. You know, say most of mud loader hunts and rifle hunts. You know, bow hunt you could you could do a little bit better maybe in the evenings. And I think I've had more, I have had more luck, you know, early season for the bow, like two or three-year-old bucks. I'm not really a monster yet because it's just so hard to catch them coming out in daylight for me, you know, you know, before the rut. So I just think it's because they smell enough and hear enough stuff in the morning that they're kind of locked down whenever they get somewhere safe and they don't really come make another move until right before dark, if if they move right before dark. So I just, I just think it's got something to do with the pressure or the, or the pressured areas in the public land that you're hunting. Yeah, I've I've wondered in the past if it has something to do with, like Joe was saying earlier, you know, most people in the Deep South, I've noticed more people hunt in the evenings. Uh, I don't know if it's, I, I suspect it's just because people don't like to get up that early and try to walk in and find a stand in the dark and do all that. So I've wondered if over the years deer don't pick up on, it's just safer to be moving around in the morning. There's just fewer hunters in the woods. Um, uh, another question, I, I know that y'all, you know, have a notoriety for shooting those, those really big deer. And you always hear people say, well, you got to let them grow. You got to let them grow. And I know y'all are hunting some properties that, you know, statistically are much more likely to produce bigger bucks and the bucks get bigger earlier on in their life. You know, like two and a half, three and a half year old deer in some of the areas y'all hunt is going to be bigger, you know, than an equivalent deer in other parts of the, the state. But how many bucks are y'all passing on, would you say? Like for every buck that you shoot, for every buck that you shoot that makes into a record book, how many are y'all letting slide? That makes into a record book? <laughs> well, yeah, I know, well, well, let's put it this way. For ones that you shoot, because I think I read in your book, you're, you're mainly trying to shoot like four and a half year old deer and, and older. Is that right? Three and a half and older. It's kind of a goal, yeah. Okay. But she's a little bit less. You know, I don't, she's only, she's killed, say, 15, I think, deer, you know, and she's killed three eight points, and she's starting to pass more before I didn't, we didn't really have no strict policy on her or anything because I wanted her to you know, enjoy it, you know, and because it's tough, you know, waiting on a three and a half year old and older for public land. So, but generally, we're looking for something that's, you know, as wide as deers have four points on one side and, and looks to be three and a half or older. So, and uh, what we pass is, is uh, I know she passes. 10 to 15 bucks a year like she didn't kill a buck last year but she probably seen 10 oh yeah i'm assuming so you know and i'll pass several and i'll pass uh, when i killed that monster one last year i had a uh, seven point that come by before him that most people would have shot he was three and a half or so older but i was kind of holding out a little bit because i had that monster went on, on the camera from the season before so but we're just you know we've shot plenty of smaller bucks you know over the years just like a lot of folks but now we're just kind of trying to you know step it up a little bit more and let if you'll, you know, and a lot of people are, they're already starting, starting to pass two-year-olds. If you let a lot of two-year-olds go during a season, say most people, then you've got a chance of killing a four or five-year-old, you know, better odds the next season. So we're just trying to go with that. And, you know, we don't want to try to wait for a five or six-year-old because on public land in Alabama, that, that's a hard thing to do. Because once they get past four, that's, that's a whole different animal. So it's, it's, it's you know, it's, if you could, that would be nice, but it's just, it ain't like being up north or somewhere where they're pressured more by, because they get, it gets colder up there and they actually got to eat, you know, a lot more than our deer do because we just don't have the weather to make a make a mature buck, you know, move in the daylight when, you know, because it's, once he gets his body to mature, he don't have to eat, you know, like normal deer, like a does, you know, she's up raising babies or pregnant, you know, all her life, she's got to eat a lot more than a, than a four-year-old, four-year-old buck because he's already got his body pretty much mature. He just puts his fat back on in the spring and summer and then, Wintertime, he's going to lay up, you know, and just move when he needs to for the rut. Michael, I want to go back to something you just said, which is that once a deer hits four or four and a half, he's a whole different animal. What do you mean by that? What makes him so much tougher? Do they go, are they way more nocturnal? Are they just way, way more alert and kind of been there, done that? What do you think really triggers differently with a deer of that age that makes him so tough to kill? Well, they're way more nocturnal, and that reason is for them to live to four and a half years old, you know, to survive, they've, they've smelled, seen, or heard so much stuff, you know, by then that they know how to pretty much, you know, stay away from hunters, you know. Most of them have already seen, you know, other deer get killed or smell where other deer get killed, and they just, and their older does have, have, have taught them a few things, you know. So 
And once they get that age, they they pretty much figure out by instinct, you know, they lay up until dark and they can cruise around and see, keep up with basically what's going on in their area and, you know, smell what's changed, smell when hunters are. They, they can tell when trucks start coming in for scouting. You know, they, just, they can tell when anything's changing. So they just, they just kind of change gears, I think. You know, a lot of people might not believe that. But I think they're just a whole different animal. They, their instincts have changed and they, they figured out how to, they're not move as much in the daytime and at night when they're walking around, they're keeping up with how people are coming in, accessing and, and figuring all that out. For me, they just they just they just learned so much by the time they're four and a half years old, it makes it, you know, ten times harder than shooting a two year old. That makes sense to me. I think you got I think you 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 hit the nail on the head. They've they've been there, done that, and and they've learned from it, obviously, because they've made it that long. I've also wondered if not, you know, if there's not just some deer that are more nocturnal than others, and that's what helps them get to be you know, four, five, six, seven years old. Uh, maybe they just naturally were that way. It doesn't really matter. The, uh, the reality is they, they make it and they're, they're hard to kill when they do. Uh, you were, you were talking about, you know, really trying to stay out of an area, uh, until you hunt it. Do you think that's a, a big part of, of your success is just keeping, keeping the pressure down, even if it's on a small scale in an area, just keeping the pressure down in that local area? Yeah, I believe that's part of our success. We just the over the years the way the way we've done things we've kinda of got like a system and we just we're comfortable doing that and it's been successful and and you know you know, finding your you know, everybody should learn to figure out a way that they want to hunt and something that fits their style, get comfortable with it and once they start being successful you kinda of keep them details and pay attention to them and just keep doing that and don't try to change too much or overthink something. Just you know, we've come comfortable with what we're doing and, and got pretty successful, so we don't. We just go with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Nick and I were having a conversation yesterday, and I was saying, you know, there's a there's a certain time of the year for me where I feel very confident if I can find a good buck. I, you know, I feel like that early season for me in bow season that I'm going to be able to get on him if I can pattern him with a, you know, and get good trail camera photos and, and get a good pattern on him. That's where I feel comfortable, and that's where I've had some success. The pre rut even the rut is where I kind of start to throw my hands up and go, man, I hope I get lucky today. So it sounds like you've got that keyed in on the pre-rut and the rut. Uh, thanks for sharing your, you know, your, your knowledge. I know it's hard earned and and we appreciate you joining us on that, but you know, going back to the, the muzzleloader side of things, I'm pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting a muzzleloader, but I'm fairly new to them. I haven't killed a whole lot of deer with them. Uh, have you had any issues getting blood trails from from a muzzleloader or or you know if you had to optimize your setup over the years or is pretty much everything worked for you what we use right now we don't have any real issues with the blood trail because there's just a, i'm a like i'm a bigger caliber fan you know i'm a 30 caliber fan and i think you know i shoot like a, a 150 grain bullet or 180s on 30 cal and then these muzzleloaders shoot 245 grain it's going to make a bigger hole and and a, and a quicker blood trail and when we're shooting bucks, and I was telling you know Kathy and and I do is just concentrate on aiming at the shoulder. You know, a doe I might pull back a little bit, but aiming at the shoulder and shooting in the shoulder it just does so much more damage than, than a smaller caliber rifle. The blood trails are insane, and and the impact of a big weighted bullet that's not traveling three thousand feet a second it just just does a lot more damage. And if you shoot a doe in the ribs, the hole is gonna be a thumb size hole versus a pinky size hole with a with a 30 caliber, you know, you might have to wait till the lungs fill up, but if you hit bust a rib, it's going to be instant blood and that, that bleed out faster. It just, I've, we've not had any issue with mud love. So. Michael, I, I'm the one who put that question there in the, uh, in the outline that we're doing here. And I find it interesting because you and I are similar. I'm a big preacher of you can shoot deer with, with any caliber, as long as it's a 30 caliber, 30 out six, 308, whatever. I'm a big 30 caliber fan as well. And I shoot usually a bigger bullet, 165, 180 grain. And since I started muzzleloader hunting, I have killed probably a dozen deer in the past couple of years with one. And I don't know why, like I, I will have to talk more later on in the podcast about what exactly you're shooting, because it's been my experience that I either kill them in sight or I have a long tracking job because I hardly ever get an exit wound, which is where I find yep. you get most of the, the blood trail from. We'll have, we'll have to circle back to that, but do you have kind of in the same vein, like if you're getting good blood trails, it sounds like you're having an easier time finding deer than I am. Once you find them, like I've, I've hunted up there in some of the parts of the world where you hunt and the terrain is 
very different from a lot of the rest of the South. And I know on a lot of WMA lands, you have kind of, uh, and they don't really like you taking four wheelers all through the woods or driving your truck back there. Um, and y'all got to take deer to check stations and stuff like that. What's your best tips for, you know, tracking down deer and then getting them out of the woods? Cause, cause I understand that's a, that's a thing for you guys in that hill country up there. You go back to the bullet a little bit like bucks. I don't know what you're talking about shooting bucks with a mother loader that you've had issues with or does. But, you know, bucks, like I say, bucks are a lot tougher, especially the older one. If you shoot heart shots or lung shots, they, they, they just travel farther. So that's why I always try to tell a rifle, whatever, to concentrate on the center of that shoulder and you know, just do more damage. But And we're shooting a, a Barnes solid copper bullet, you know, static bullet, 245 grains. And that, we get exit wounds on just about all of them. So, uh, I've, as a matter of fact, I don't think I've not had an exit wound on, on the barn bullet with the mother loader. So, that's what we shoot. So, but, but you, uh, if you don't see the animal die or expire, I always wait an hour before I do anything. If I think it's a bad shot, say, you know, an intestine shot or something, I'm going to wait three or four hours minimum, you know, and, and it could be more than that. If I'm sure it'd be six hours. So, then tracking and, you know, we got a, a core group of friends, whatever. If it's something we're going to have an issue with getting it out, you know, we've got deer carts that's, that's popular now. We want to carry them. I always, you know, some people are packing them out, but I like I like carrying them out whole and getting them checked and see what they weigh, you know, have the whole body of the deer to look at and kind of show off and stuff. So we, we use deer carts and, you know, we have dragged them now since deer carts, you know, I got one that's a pack in and a backpack in and we just use that. I got you. Yeah, well, definitely. That's that's good tips. We'll have to talk more about those Barnes bullets. And and something you say that I'm really jealous of is you're shooting these big deer and you got a team of people that you're willing to take to that location. Because I know uh, I have shot some deer here in the swamp that I would love to have had a hand getting out, but there was no way in the world I was going to tell somebody where that deer died. <laughs> so you got, We got a truck. A trustworthy group of people. It's not going to just tell anybody. It's a, it's a trustworthy group. You know, we got over the years, like we're talking about, just you get familiar with a guy that kind of like the same goals. You know, trying to shoot bigger bucks, and they they're and they're particular about who they tell. So we just we just stay with like a five people group, basically what we got. So we share a lot of information. If we need help, we'll call each other and they, we'll help each other out. That's nice to have. It, it ups the camaraderie, and, and I don't know how y'all feel about it, but, you know, kind of with my core group of people that, that I share information with, when they when they have success, I feel like I've had success. It, it, it kind of adds to the hunt for me, and I love knowing that other people are out there on, on the days that I'm not hunting and the days that I am hunting and that I'm going to be able to share stories with them and talk about what's happening. It just makes it a lot more fun, I think. Back to the gear a little bit. What do you look for in a muzzleloader? So, you know, you were talking about how in your in your early days of doing this, you really didn't have scopes. Uh, a lot of those muzzleloaders back then were not, uh, not nearly as high-tech as what we've got now. You've got the ability to use a scope some places out west. You, you, you It's not legal, it's state by state. But in terms of a muzzleloader that you want to carry, you want to load, you want to deal with cleaning, you want to deal with what you've got to do in between hunts, what do you like in a muzzleloader? Well, there's several good companies now. We just we've uh you know inline mobile is the easiest one to keep clean. But you know the old the older ones you know that they, they didn't break down. They didn't, you only had to go in through the barrel and that was it. They were hard to clean. Some of the bolt action style ones they you don't. Know, that's a lot of parts you have to take apart to, to get clean. But the inline ones you know now you can screw the the brick plug out with your hand you know and run run your rod through there with a brush or, or whatever and clean it quick you know and it's it's just a lot easier, you know. We use CVA. That's what we got comfortable with, and uh, and they're accurate. So that's you know, and well, I probably once I get comfortable with something like that, that'll probably don't be the only brand I ever buy. It's just like it's just like my bow, and you know, whatever, whatever I get comfortable with, it don't let me down. That's what I'm shooting. So we're, we're shooting CVA. Like see, I got a Optima Long Range that she bought me for Christmas several years back, and killed several bucks with that now. And then she's got the Acura, and, and uh, she's got a Wolf too. So. We, but we've got several of them that just they're just so much easier to clean the inline is and it and uh we uh hers is nitrite coated it's got a protection on the barrel and mine's a stainless one so a little bit more weather resistant we got a couple of tricks like we always keep tape over the end of the barrels because i don't any kind of moisture coming in and we'll uh 
put them in the vehicle and leave them in the vehicle. We don't bring them in and out of the houses, you know, because I'll leave them loaded for two days. And after the second day, we'll, we'll knock the powder out, whatever, and then, and then freshen them up. So instead of doing it every day, you, just, you don't have to do it every day. I've never had one that not fire because of that. So keeping them loaded in between hunts, not a big deal, but you do like to keep that tape over the barrel. And I've, I've done that with uh, centerfire rifles. And I guess you can just, no issues with just firing right through it. Uh, yeah, the, it'll build up pressure and just push a hole right through there one effect. And, you know, I've done it like you're talking about the centerfire rifles in, in Alaska and places like in Wyoming where you get a lot of dust and stuff. But it, it, the pressure of the, the wind pushing out, you know, it blows the hole. Your bullet will never even touch it. So. Well, you mentioned those Barnes bullets. Do you have, you know, and, and, and I'm like you, once I find a system that works, I'm real hesitant to change no matter what technology, you know, technology changes, you know, in, in the meantime, if it's working, I don't really like to mess with it. What do you like for in powders and, and primers? These power decks, powders, you know, the, the power deck pellets, so you just got crumpled with that, you know, and just never had an issue with them. Make, I make sure they don't have any chunks in them. And then I, I use Winchester, a certain Winchester primer, the same ones. I always, I keep that stuff the same because I just don't like any changes. And once it, you know, if it's consistent and it works, I try not to deviate from anything like that because, like you say, if it, if it don't let you down and you're comfortable with it, that's the biggest thing is you're comfortable with it, know it works, and don't have to fool around with a bunch of trials. Are you guys shooting a 50 caliber or 45? Yeah, they're both 50 calibers. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you. Every episode uh, this week is brought to us by Great Days Outdoors magazine. If you're frustrated with typical hunting and fishing magazines and tired of reading content, then for guys that are up in the north or up in the Midwest, check out Great Days Outdoors magazine. Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't fish or hunt in your home state. You can pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and it will help you become a better Southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, or you can save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. It's also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. You know, earlier I mentioned that uh, recoil is a is a factor in, in what I'm doing uh, with muzzle loaders. I've got two young boys and a, and a wife that, that likes to hunt with me. And I, I just want to make sure I'm setting them up for success. And I had some bad experiences as a, as a young man that, that I had to unlearn, develop some flinches and things like that from shooting stuff that was a little bit too big for my britches at, at the time. Michael, do, do you set up Miss Kathy differently uh, in terms of uh, what she's shooting out of her muzzleloader and what you're shooting? She shoots the same bullet. I like keeping that kind of consistent on that, but her powder is, is, is 100 grains. And one thing about a muzzler is, is most of them is built a little bit heavier that don't kick as bad as, as they, are, they are a smaller frame rifle would. But that, that's a higher caliber. And, you know, she's practiced quite a bit and uh, kind of used to that a little bit. And it's got a good recoil pad on it. So, but the Acura that she's got, the one she won, is a little bit heavier than that wolf that don't kick as bad. It don't it reduces the muzzle jump, so, and she's got she's familiar with it. Look, but biggest thing is she just the first time we loaded the thing up for it, and the first shot she ever shot one, she hit a dime at a hundred yards. So, wow! I, mean, I love that weight. <laughs> so, and so she's so she's just so confident with it, and, and hunting she knows she don't she knows that when she shoots hunting she don't feel any kind of recoil. So it's right. just, that's I mean so and she only weighs a hundred three pounds or something. Ah. So. Not me, not me going there. But that's okay. I mean, she's, a, she's four foot. Well, she's, All right now. She's five foot three and what's about 103 pounds. I'm saying, I mean, she deals with it. She, she just got comfortable with it. They don't kick at that. Them style don't kick at bad. And she's got a good recoil pad on it, a little bit heavier. Only 100 grains of powder versus I shoot 150 grains of powder, you know, so with a 
with a heavier barrel, longer barrel gun too. So. And thing of it is, when you got a buck in front of you, you're not thinking about the impact. You just thinking right. about getting that buck off the ground. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right about that for sure. Well, uh, you know, in the in the terrain you guys hunt, what's a typical shot, and where do you and how far do you feel comfortable? The technology and muzzleloaders has come a long way, and there are some muzzleloaders that can do some amazing things nowadays. Everybody's pushing the envelope of how far they're shooting at animals with a bow, how far they're shooting at animals with a rifle, and muzzleloaders are no different. What do you limit yourself to shots wise? Any way we hunt, period, rifle or whatever, where we hunt, it's very rare that you're going to get a hundred yard shot. So it's, mm. uh, I don't think I've shot anything at 100 yards with a muzzleloader, and very few things with a rifle at 100 yards where we hunt at. So, but one, like the marks when I kill at 40 something yards, and I think I shot another maybe at 50. I don't think I've ever shot at one past 50 yards. Just the way we set up, I try to set up close on what we're hunting. And I so think what, mine was only like 40 yards, right? No, nah, her, the one she killed, the big X point she killed was like 30 yards. Yeah, but, 30 yards. Yeah. So it's, it's low range. So. It's the style, the way we hunt, is it's generally thicker areas. We're not going to have a long shot. It's, uh, it's, so we just, only, we always make sure we can hit 100 yards. And then that's, you know, that's it. We're, we're not going to have a 100-yard shot or farther most of the time. Have you guys run into any situations, any issues with your muzzleloader or your, or your overall setup uh, in the field that that's kind of led you to where you are? Like you said, you've got a system you like. Did you did you have any trials and tribulations that, that got you to what you like? Well, the, you know, the older ones, the, the Thompson Center, Hawkins, and all them, they were just so much harder to clean, so we moved away from that. Then I had a boat action one another time. It's just that much more parts to take, take apart to clean. So once we got to these, they're easier to clean and maintain, so we're confident of that, so we're, we're having no issue really with that now. What about accessories? I know that for me, the hope is is obviously not to have to take a follow-up shot but when you're in the heat of the moment, the last thing you want to be doing is having to think too hard. You just want to load up and, and get the next shot ready. Do you use any accessories when you're muzzleloader hunting that you feel like are essential that that's different from, say, if you were on a rifle hunt or, or a bow hunt? We both got some little like, possible bag things, and uh, I've worked with her on like basically like training sessions where we're using speed loaders, and, and she knows how, you know, they're already preloaded. You just turn the powder in and, and put take a short, a short starter and push that bullet through, start it, and then, then she put it down on that long rod. So I, I work with on that. She's familiar with doing that, comfortable doing with it. Then we have a little thing that you keep some extra primers in, and it, it's just a pretty simple. It's pretty quick, really. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a pretty, pretty simple process. So, Michael, you talking about having those speed loaders on you for a quick follow-up shot. Do y'all have any type routine as far as any type cleaning in between shots or, or just what's your, what's your general routine for cleaning your gun in the fields like we've done a bunch of tests while we we're practicing at the range and stuff and neither one of our motors will even think about spraying a bullet until after like five or six shots so we don't have to do any kind of cleaning on our normal hunt trip because we're not you know we won't shoot no more than twice if we're lucky so i've shot twice a couple times like killing two different deer because it's a place that you can shoot two in a day but other than that like if we get through and then we'll go back to camp to clean i'll make sure i'll, I'll get the the foam and stuff that you clean the barrel out with and you know make sure the barrel's clean and dry patch it a bunch of times and then say you before the season starts or when you get ready for a hunt i make sure i run several dry patches through to get any kind of residual oil out some people are pretty big about you know dry firing a couple caps through there i have done that but most of the time dry patching just make sure i don't have any kind of residue on that patch before i load them is the biggest thing and then making sure them them uh the primer hole is cleaner, you know, that's, you know, but as far as second shot, third shot, our guns are accurate enough and then power decks is, is a cl- pretty clean burning that you don't really have to worry about that unless you shoot a bunch of shots. Well, Michael, the way I'd love to wrap this up is, you know, for folks that don't know, you, you hold the state record, uh, whitetail in the muzzleloader category. I want to hear about that deer, man. Tell us, tell us the story. Give me the background. I mean, was this a deer you followed for a while? Did it, did it take you a while to get on him? I, I kind of want to hear start to finish how, how that hunt played out. I had two years, well, actually three years worth of pictures of him counting the year that I killed him. And the main reason that I looked up on it, well, I didn't really look up on it for the muzzleloader. I'd already killed two different bucks on this piece of public land that made record books, one with a bow and one with a rifle. And uh, before that season started, I told a bunch of guys, I think I'm just going to talk my muzzleloader the whole season on all the gun hunts, you know, and try to do it with a, with a muzzleloader. And uh, 
it just so happened that the first day I waited because the camera, trail cameras told me that first week of November was when he was daylighting to start with. And he might daylight like a little bit in the middle of November, but generally I only have like two or three daylight pictures of him. And when he was four and a half, he had a bunch of stickers and just was big for four and a half and didn't, didn't see him any then. And then at five and a half, you could tell at the end of the year, four and a half, he was kind of skinny and was pretty run down. And at five and a half, he got his body built back, but it was probably 160 something inch deer. And I missed him by one day on that on that season. He come by the day after a hunt, trailing some does at nine something, 10 o'clock in the morning. So then this season, when I took him, I waited. I didn't intrude in that area any. I left it alone and dropped Kathy off, I'll say, a quarter mile up on a, on a trail that went from a side of the ridge going to a secondary point that had some sign on it. And I went on down to a the spot above a creek crossing that where he was daylighting some and, uh, and set up and got climbed up and say at 930 I had a pretty decent two or three year old six or seven point was a big body buck I mean those people would have shot him up already come back at 20 something yards watched him and that year it was pretty green for for November as a matter of fact it was real green we'd had a lot of good rain and stuff so he went on by and was messing around eating some white oaks and slipped up and I knew and kind of disappeared, and then a few minutes later, something caught the corner of my eye, and I just see this huge side standing down there, and then walk behind some uh, Calcutta bushes, and uh, just barely could see part of his rear end. He stood behind a tree forever, but I just seen that huge side. Knew it was a big old buck. Wasn't sure if it was one I had on camera, but just knew he was plenty big enough to shoot some other water. So kind of got positioned waiting, and he was like 45 yards away, and he eased out behind that tree, and I put it right behind his shoulder, where I was pretty sure the bullet would come out at his shoulder because it kind of quartered away and squeezed off. Seen the seen a mule kick, a white flash, and he run off. And I thought I could hear some kind of a crash, but I wasn't sure. Just you know, how you second guess everything. And so I was going to wait an hour, and then after about 30 minutes, I had peas. I had a pea bottle, and I kind of got that out, and took care of that. And I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and pack my stuff up. And during all the excitement stuff, I. I kind of got about that pea bottle, knocked it off, and it hit everything in the world going down, made a bunch of rackets. So it, heck, young. If he ain't dead, I've run him off. But, <laughs> so I went ahead and slipped down and went to where I thought I'd shot him at, and I was off about 30 yards, you know, too close, and uh, couldn't find any blood. So I kind of started doing a little bit of zigzagging and got to about where I shot him at, found a real good blood trail, and followed it, followed where he run into a tree and knocked the bark off of a smaller wide oak. Then I come to a little knob, and when I stepped up, I could see over that knob. I could see him laying, turned back away, facing me, laying with that big, huge side that had a bunch of stickers on it. And just, I knew it was one I had on camera then. Tears started coming down because seeing him laying there, like he, he was just a monster. But, didn't, you know, I knew he was big, big, and but I didn't know he was that big until later on. But he was just a huge looking deer. I figured it was 170 something. So I was thinking the whole time, which would be the biggest one I killed. But I'd kill a 158 with a rifle, and that you know, I think he was, he was bigger than that one. So, anyway, tears and all that, and uh, you know, video and took a few pictures and just sat there and just looking at him and thanking God about how you know something could grow that big in six and a half years, and just it was amazing. And and uh, I knew I was going to try to full body mine, so I just barely cut a slit in there and field dressed him. And I knew I was going to get people to come help me, so I drug him hour and something by myself because I didn't know I didn't want them to know exactly where I shot him at. So right. I got him a pretty good way. <laughs> <laughs> then I, I got up there to her late i was supposed to pick her up at like 11 so i got up her to nearly 12 yeah and uh, she looked at me and she said well, yeah. i said i got him and i had blood all over me <laughs> and she's like you got him so big he's big so we went down and i called uh we eased out and i called the biologist and asked him he's gonna be checking state and he said yeah and i called my friends up the one that's gonna help and it took us we had to carry a cart down there and it's an hour and something walk get the cart down there and then it took us we didn't get back to checking until about 25, 30 minutes before dark. Yeah, so, oh, wow. it was an all day. <laughs> wow. He weighed 225 pounds with big, body, biggest body deer I'd ever killed. And if we had to come up a big bluff face and stuff like that. And it's, but it was well worth it. And them, them kind of, them kind of, you know, things that you share with your friends and your, my wife. And, you know, it just makes that, that much better. Just taking time, getting them out, you know, bringing water and snacks with us and sitting there talking, telling stories. You know, while you're resting and drag some more, roll some more. It's just, it was fun. It's a very unique experience. I mean, it's just blessed that it happened. And, it, you know, because that's the biggest one I've ever had on camera that I, that I killed. Most of the other ones, 
that I killed them. I didn't have them on camera. They just, or somebody else might have had them on camera. But hardly ever I killed a monster one that I had on camera. Yeah, man, what a cool story. And I know you enjoy reliving those memories too. Like you say, I, we all like to get a big mature deer. I think every hunter enjoys that, but I think part of the reason why most of us hunt is, is being able to share the experience with other people. And it sounds like y'all are doing that and having a, having a great time doing it. I want to ask you one thing though, uh, out of listening to that story, I really keyed in on what you were saying about that deer daylighting, uh, at a certain time of year. And it, you mentioned it earlier with your trail cameras and you're really focusing on when these deer are out in the daylight. Do you find, is there any trend year to year with a particular deer? Like if you get a deer in the daylight in the first week of November this year, do you feel like there's a good chance he's going to do that again the very next year? Have you noticed anything in your hunts or in your trail cameras that would point to that? He did for sure. You know, I've had a couple other ones that, that would do it, but I've just never seen him. I've missed him by a day or something. But he did for three years in a row during the first week of November. He would be daylight in this, in this one spot. And I had, I had another camera that was in the general area, like a quarter mile away. He would show up on it too, but, but it, uh, he would daylight on it that season. I killed him in September, but the only time that he, that he would daylight during November or during deer season was that first week of November, and he'd done it for three years in a row. So it was kind of kind of unique. So it was actually the week before the rut, so I don't know if it just where he felt comfortable being at that time of the year. It was it just, I mean, just basically kind of luck, but it wasn't really luck. I just, I was just, I just waited for that time frame without pushing me. It's interesting. The reason I ask is because I, I've, I think I have noticed that correlation in some of my own hunts and in some of my own trail camera photos is that, you know, I, I, you know, on deer where I could tell it's the same deer. I'm like, man, you know, go back and look, get a picture of a deer and I go back and look like he did almost the same thing the year before. Kind of makes you want to go back and look at some of your old trail camera photos and get a plan for this year. It sounds like that's what y'all do. I also got a journal, you know, a log book like that I keep up with all deer sightings. Like every year, whatever we see, we write it down. Of course, whatever we kill, we write it down. And all that's dated. And then if there's any funky weather, I correlate that, write that down. So, of course, with the trail camera pictures, I keep all of what I call like shooter bucks saved on the computer. And I look at them, you know, I'll go back five years looking at them to kind of see what's correlating and use that to make the plan before we get ready for season. Well, that's a great tip right there. I know that people can can even go back right now and start pulling out those shooter bucks and start getting a plan together for this season. And I think that was my big takeaway from you today, too, is just how much energy you put into this uh, really year round. If it's not actually being out there scouting, you, you're thinking about it. You're getting prepared uh, for the right timing. And it's been a lot, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge i know it's it's hard earned and appreciate you being willing to share that with everybody here today i appreciate that one of the one thing i really stress is postseason scouting you know as soon as their season's over with you can correlate all that sign and, and you can see better with what happened during the deer season so I, we'll spend i don't know we'll we'll go and scout say eight or nine miles at a time during the day multiple times you know we'll do 100, over 100 miles you know every every postseason you know, part of us in the area that we kind of concentrate on. Actually, we got like four areas we concentrate on. Then other parts we're looking for new areas. You know, different bucks or big bucks. Just trying to stay ahead of it for the next season. So the most time you can spend scouting after season, post season is real valuable to me. As part, that's one of the main strategies we do, along with that trail camera stuff. So. Well, Michael, you've given some great tips, but you've also literally written the book on taking mature bucks on public land. If folks want to check that book out, tell them where they can find it, give them the title, and uh, and where they can look for it. Well, it's uh, Deer Hunting, Secrets to Taking Mature Bucks on Public Land. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. As a matter of fact, it's been a process. You know, once I killed this monster, you know, I, I used to do, I wrote some uh, hunt advisories for Alabama Outdoor News magazine for a while, and I've had some other articles published over the years. So I actually wrote for 14 years doing a hunt advisory for Alabama Outdoor News, so Really enjoyed that stuff, and after I killed this monster one and I killed a few other big ones, I thought I'd like to try to write a book, just kind of, you know, have like something my grandkids talk about, just feel like a, a cool accomplishment. So I talked with a guy and just just come up with a plan to write it, and it is a pretty major process, a lot more intense than some would think to me. But anyway, and just now, just yesterday or the day before, I've just now got a hard copy of it that's published that come out so you can be ordered a hard copy now versus a paperback or a ebook so 
So it's still a kind of a process. It just, you know, and I'm not saying I know everything or we know everything. It just it shares a lot of the success that we've had and the, and the strategies that we use to, to take some of these mature bucks. So it's just, and I'm a big fan of like reading stuff and listening to podcasts and, you know, magazines and just because I can, you can pick up tips from a lot of, a lot of other people, even people up north or out west that, that, that could apply to down here or, or to where y'all hunting at. So I always try to keep a broad, open mind. And I tell people, keep an open mind. Don't get too too closed-minded or too get locked in on one certain thing and, and try to vary something every now and then and try to read and pay attention to what other people are doing and see if you can apply that to your style of hunting. And just, you know, just be open-minded. That's great advice. Well, Michael, Kathy, thank y'all so much for joining us today. I, I wish y'all continued success going into this season. I know uh, it's it's almost that time. Hard to believe uh, you're sitting there sweating, but it'll be here before we know it. I hope y'all have good luck. I appreciate yeah, it. Thank y'all. Nick, I always think it's fun to talk to guys that, that focus on killing mature deer. Um, I've had phases in my life, you know, where that was, that was my thing. You know, I really wanted to do it. I've kind of graduated back to, if it gets me fired up today, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know, I don't always have to have a big mature white tail out in front of me. Uh, but, but I do appreciate them. And, and when I've hunted one, it's a humbling experience. They're, they're a different animal. Like, like Michael said, I think that the biggest thing I, I took away from the advice and the, the tips and the techniques and everything he was talking about was really the the pressure aspect of what he's doing. He's hunting public land, but he's staying out of these areas until it's time. And I know I can be guilty of, let me just walk back in there and see how things look, you know, just to kind of check on things, just to, just to see what's going on. And he's, he's gotten it down to where he knows, like he knows this is going to be a good area. I can just leave it alone until it's time to go in there and hunt. And, uh, I'm definitely going to apply that to my strategies along with the trail camera knowledge. You know, I've got some deer on camera, uh, from the last two seasons that have, that have been, I would say regular on camera at night, but occasionally daylight. And now I'm thinking, all right, now I need to go back and figure out what was, what time of year was that? Where were they? Uh, and go ahead and get some stands in place for that right timing this season coming up. What, what was your key takeaway from today? I think I think my biggest takeaway, yeah, was that I'm obviously doing something wrong with my bullet selection. It sounds uh, like I'm it. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to go check out some of them solid solid copper bullets that he was talking about. But then I think the other thing that you know, like you were saying, everybody wants to shoot big deer, and I've kind of got to the phase where I've realized there's a lot of things that I like to do that I can do in the amount of time it takes to kill a big deer because I'd, I'd encourage listeners to ask themselves how many of you were seeing. 10 bucks on public land in a year to pass on right you know like just 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 astronomically low odds and it's it's impressive that that michael and and the group that he runs with have the determination and the patience Hmm. to put in all of the work but then also pass on that many deer to to shoot the really big ones they've obviously got it their scouting and stand placement dialed in to be on the deer to begin with but like you said you better have a good bit of patience on your side if you really want to hunt big mature whitetails, cause it's going to require it. You're going to have to, uh, you'll have to let some of them go. No doubt. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you to get the podcast emailed to you each week. Just text the word hunting to seven, seven, three, seven, seven, zero, four, three, seven, seven. Again, just text the word hunting to seven, seven, three, seven, seven, zero, four, three, seven, seven. You'll join our email list and wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you've got a show topic that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's show is brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter Products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. To learn more, visit texashunter.com. And also brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Built by sportsmen for sportsmen. Mallardbay.com. 
and also Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. They now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters, and also by Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. Visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co-op near you.